I want you to hit me as hard as you can. Perhaps despite his better judgment, director Francis Ford Coppola had once again teamed with author Mario Puzo for the 1990 holiday release of Paramount's The Godfather Part 3, which capped off the year along with Home Alone and Edward Scissorhands. Unlike its popular and celebrated predecessors, the sequel to The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2 suffered at the hands of destructive critics and worse, repulsed fans of the first two chapters. While some may defend The Godfather Part 3, the fact that Coppola and Puzo were reluctant to be a part of it isn't really a good sign. Soon after, a fateful circumstance of that movie would steer Coppola towards his next, arguably much more interesting, cinematic journey. One with a familiar title from historic literature and a hardcore built-in fanbase. A story filled with recognizable themes of love, passion, seduction, and heartbreak. Yes, the 1992 Bloodsucker Saga Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Oh, wait, no. The other vampire epic from that same year, Bram Stoker's Dracula. Don't let the title fool you. Coppola has always been a loyalist to the narrative structure, like including Mario Puzo's name across his Godfather series. But this is still really Francis Ford Coppola's Dracula. Want to hear about the battles this movie would endure long before it earned status as the cult classic it is today? Well, take a seat and relax. Grab yourself something to eat and pour a nice drink as we try to figure out what the fuck happened to this movie. Poor Winona Ryder. The actress unexpectedly became a reason to blame for one disaster while simultaneously rectifying that mistake by being the key figure of director Francis Ford Coppola's next surprising project. It's hard to talk about the overall story behind Bram Stoker's Dracula without including the drama that unfolded on The Godfather Part 3. Beyond salary disputes with actor Robert Duvall, an almost aversion in the 1980s from Sylvester Stallone and John Travolta, yeah, talk about what the fuck, no controversy made it to the surface faster than the loss of then-it-girl actress Winona Ryder, who was originally cast as Mary Corleone, only to immediately withdraw for health reasons. Just think, you're a hot new teen ingenue hitting the big time after three back-to-back-to-back -to -back -to -back movies, and your next slated contract is the sequel in one of the most successful franchises of all time. You reach the set in beautiful Rome, alongside Hollywood talent like Al Pacino, Andy Garcia, and director Francis Ford Coppola. You hit your hotel room, and then, boom, you collapse from nervous exhaustion and upper respiratory infection, with a fever of 104. The doctor strongly recommends you be released from your contractual obligations. And so, you miss out on the biggest opportunity of your life, and are basically held responsible for this. Dad? Because a lot can be constructed in the rumor mill, Winona Ryder took it upon herself to meet with Coppola directly after production finished on The Godfather Part 3, in an attempt to clear the air. After all, you just don't mess with certain directors and their projects without facing possible repercussions. It was during this encounter that Ryder casually tossed the director a copy of her latest interest, the newest screenplay adaptation of Bram Stoker's famous 1897 novel, Dracula, this time written by screenwriter James V. Hart. Coincidentally, this was the second adaptation of Dracula simultaneously in Hollywood circulation, with Hart's version nearly becoming a television movie to be directed by Michael Apted. The other adaptation making the rounds was by Glory screenwriter Kevin Jarre, arranged for the screen by Universal Pictures, the home of several previous and famous interpretations of Dracula. James V. Hart was fairly new to the game. Aside from a forgotten R-rated cheerleader comedy, he had only one credit on his resume, but it was a big one, 
the Steven Spielberg-directed 1991 fantasy Hook, with Robin Williams and Dustin Hoffman. But unlike that movie, Hart's version of Dracula was an honest and respectful depiction. Coppola's eyes lit up when they saw the title on the script. Ryder had seemed to strike some kind of nerve within him. He recalled a fond memory of the book presented through separate tales in relation to the characters. Both Coppola and Winona Ryder seemed to agree on the untold nature and true meaning of the story at its core, that it was more than just the horror story that history would come to know and embrace. It represented eternal and forbidden romance, passion, and sensuality during a time when those emotions would be withheld or even considered quite shameful. In other words, Ryder was practically a shoe-in to portray the romantic love interest Mina Harker. Coppola became determined to make this version of Dracula and beat Universal out of the gate before they could bring a new variation of their classic monster to screens. When Kevin Jarre's screenplay for Dracula got staked, he shifted focus to the Kurt Russell Val Kilmer Western Tombstone, which had its own what the f episode worth of behind-the-scenes drama. Francis Ford Coppola set his sights on helming the Transylvanian anti-hero's legendary conquest, producing the project through his company American Zoetrope. The big-budget interpretation would be a considerable risk for the production company, which was then on the verge of bankruptcy. Choosing to work with Columbia Pictures for distribution, instead of his usual godfather company, Paramount, it wouldn't take long for Coppola to be approved with a $40 million budget. Bram Stoker's Dracula gathered an impressive cast, filled with talent on the brink of stardom, many desperate and excited to be working with famed director Coppola. There was Richard E. Grant, fresh off Robert Altman's The Player, Bill Campbell, just putting his feet on the ground after Disney's The Rocketeer, Carrie Elways, looking ready for a pitch meeting on a Princess Bride sequel, and singer-songwriter Tom Waits, portraying the bug-loving lunatic servant, Renfield. Actress Sadie Frost, an unknown at the time, would be remembered for her overly seductive Dracula victim, Lucy, and, perhaps unfairly, as the future ex-Mrs. Jude Law. Even though Winona Ryder had been the one to get the wheels rolling on this production, after all that drama and history, she still had to audition and compete with Drew Barrymore before winning the role of Mina Harker. For the role of Mina's husband, Jonathan, Ryder attempted to keep her momentum going and lobbied for her boyfriend at the time, some nobody named Johnny Depp. And she even convinced Coppola completely. Unfortunately, the studio wouldn't back the Depp decision. Columbia Pictures wasn't entirely sold on his acting capabilities or his name attracting the younger generation of ticket consumers. They wanted somebody with great looks, box office reliability, and a wider range of performance in his career. But Christian Slater turned it down. Do you know who you're with here, man? I'm Christian Slater. I will kill your ass, man. Sir, please calm down. I need you to calm down right now. That led to the casting of Keanu Reeves. After the 1991 hits Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey and Point Break, it's easy to understand exactly why the studio selected him. As for the general and critical reaction to his actual performance in the movie, let's just say his career recovered just fine. More impressive was the addition of Sir Anthony Hopkins, straight from the biggest role of his career, the Academy Award-winning performance as Hannibal Lecter in The Silence of the Lambs. Hopkins would not be in the title role of Dracula, but instead as the unpredictable Dr. Van Helsing, a role that had been aggressively pursued by actor Liam Neeson. In the role of Vlad the Impaler, aka the Count Dracula, fallen Transylvania soldier, a possessed demon in the body of a man, cursed to live forever and haunted endlessly by the memory of his deceased bride, was legendary actor Gary Oldman. At the time, Oldman was not yet the acclaimed, award-winning actor who would go on to play Sirius Black, Commissioner Jim Gordon, Ludwig van Beethoven, Norman Stansfield, Jean-Baptiste Emmanuel Zorg, Drexel the Pimp, and Winston Churchill. 
Considering that, it's almost amazing he was able to beat the competition. Names like Viggo Mortensen, Daniel Day-Lewis, Gabriel Byrne, Andy Garcia, Alan Rickman, Antonio Banderas, and even Michael Keaton, all itching to work with Coppola and be involved with the material. Surprisingly, before Oldman, it was actually a relatively unknown actor named Jason Carter who had become Coppola's first choice for the starring role, much to the dismay of the studio. But Gary Oldman was hot off his performance as Sid Vicious in Sid and Nancy, followed by rave reviews playing Lee Harvey Oswald in JFK. It might even be fair to say, out of the cast at that time in their careers, Oldman might have had the least star power, but his successful audition and his presence on film would change all of that. Despite the story itself taking place in Transylvania and London, Coppola would not use that funding to relocate his crew overseas for authenticity, a lesson he seemed to learn from Apocalypse Now and One from the Heart both of which suffered greatly from inflated budget and film location challenges that would spell the beginning of American Zoetrope's financial struggles. Instead, he vowed to prove to Columbia Pictures that he was capable of playing ball and remained in the U.S. shooting almost all of Dracula on sound stages. Because Coppola wanted to distinguish his version from all previous screen incarnations, the budget wisely went to orchestrating a team of creative mad geniuses behind the scenes, inspiring imaginations without borders with hair and makeup designer Michelle Burke taking a unique approach to the old widow's peaked, pasty-skinned monster that Hollywood had painted this historic figure throughout the decades. The pleasantly bizarre costume designs came from Eiko Ishioka, who went on to filmmaker Tarsum Singh's visually opulent movies like The Cell and The Fall. To cut costs and to achieve his desired aesthetic, Coppola even fired the original visual effects team and hired his magician's son, Roman Coppola, to produce more practical imagery which was both financially efficient and perfectly blended with the way such a movie would have been made in the time period being depicted. One battle Coppola could not win was in regards to the sets. Coppola wanted to take a symbolist approach, with minimal sets filled with shadows and cloud projections, almost like a stage play, stressing that the magnificent costumes should be the jewel of the set. Weeks before filming, he fired production designer Dante Ferretti and brought in Hook's art director Thomas Sanders but the replacement also wouldn't deliver the sparse dark limbos the director envisioned for sets. Coppola's ideas were just considered too radical by those holding the movie's purse, and he wound up with more traditionally extravagant Hollywood sets. With everything in place, Bram Stoker's Dracula would begin shooting on October 15, 1991. Every production has its share of problems surrounding their set that need to be resolved, but luckily for Coppola and American Zoetrope this time around, no troubles were quite the size of Apocalypse Now. Coppola had insisted on the actor's participation in rehearsals, a luxury that many productions now don't give to their performers. Upon their early moments during pre-production and rehearsals, Gary Oldman and Winona Ryder were friendly and welcoming of each other. But when it came to shooting, something happened. It seemed their different approaches in getting in character conflicted so much they were unable to look past how uncomfortable they now were with each other's presence. Some would say Ryder found it especially difficult in the more intimate scenes, treating Oldman more like a kid who had transferable cooties. Being trained under acting coach Greta Seacat, Ryder would need a minute to get inside her head to play the sexually complicated Mina, always eventually finding her angle. But Oldman's approach was much more method, embodying Vlad the Impaler 24-7. You can imagine that becoming quite exhausting and intimidating to deal with, with the character personifying aggression, hate, and an absence of a soul. Ryder referred to him as the King of Pain, and Oldman admitted he was unrelenting in intensity. No, no. Are you okay? Yes. Now that's method.
Both Ryder and Oldman have since gone on record that any conflict on the production was elementary and immature compared to their love and respect for each other now. Oldman also had his moments with others on set, in particular, heated disputes with the director. All I need is a mark, that, even if it's a white chalk mark on the set. There isn't such when, a mark, it goes I by would, the line. Yes, but then I can enter. Oldman could be opinionated and dominating on the set. He had developed something of a father-son dynamic with Coppola, complete with all the intentional or subconscious rebellion of authority figures that implies. Like his own father, who had abandoned him at an early age, Oldman also wrestled with alcohol addiction, which occasionally surfaced during the course of production. He got picked up for drunk driving over one weekend break and was, allegedly, intoxicated during the shoot on certain days, including a memorable scene where Dracula struggles to refrain from licking a blood-streaked razor. On a more positive note, Oldman has reportedly been sober since 1995. Adding to the intensity of the set, Ryder recalled Coppola using unorthodox methods to throw his actors into the heat of the moment, from whispered vulgarities to more excessive measures. In a scene requiring her to scream and cry with shame, Ryder said Coppola encouraged the actors off-camera to shout obscenities at her during takes to emotionally provoke her, although Hopkins and Keanu Reeves were apparently reluctant to participate in this idea. Both Ryder and Coppola have since downplayed the incidents to a great degree. Another, more amusing rumor was that a real Romanian minister performed the wedding ceremony scene between Reeves and Ryder's characters, which accidentally but legally bound the actors as man and wife. Congratulations to the happy couple! The movie's outfits by Eiko Ishioka may have been gorgeous, but were not necessarily practical. The elaborate but physically limiting nature of the costumes occasionally required Coppola to approach scenes differently so the actors could actually move. Of that distinctive red armor, Oldman commented that the suit was wearing me. When he wasn't acting as ringleader to his circus of a cast and their unfolding drama of both the interpersonal and wardrobe variety, Coppola aimed his attention at Roman Coppola's practical effects team. Together, both father and son would apply nearly a century's worth of filmmaking tricks. With any other movie, this old-fashioned visual style would stick out like a sore thumb, but with Bram Stoker's Dracula, it felt organic, honest, surreal, and complimentary. Without any green screen, optical effects, or the CGI that was blossoming in Hollywood at the time, Coppola used what he called naive techniques, including forced perspective, matte paintings, slanted sets, front projection, reverse motion, miniature models, antiquated camera equipment, rear projection, and multiple exposure. Anything to manipulate the eye of the viewer. From Dracula's shadow developing a personality of its own, to the details of a battlefield told through shadow puppetry or Dracula spider-crawling down the outside wall of his castle, or a murder sequence so graphic the scene of the crime was literally painted from wall to wall with gallons of blood and gore. Coppola certainly didn't make it easy for himself with these archaic visual methods, but through careful planning and precision, this unique approach to the recreation of cinema's most famous monster proved quite the success. Through thick and thin, principal photography on Bram Stoker's Dracula, the final title after Coppola failed to convince himself to name it simply D, ended on January 31st, 1992. The planned release date shifted from the summer of 1992 out to November 13th, allowing additional breathing room for edits and post-production. But things didn't go too bloody well with test screenings of a 155-minute original cut, which earned it the insider nickname The Bonfire of the Vampires, a reference to the Tom Hanks Bruce Willis box office bomb from 1990. Other criticisms were that it was just too gory, and, um, nobody seemed to like Keanu Reeves' performance. If I may inquire, 
What in fact happened to Mr. Renfield in Transylvania? After a drastic last-minute cut down to 126 minutes, the filmmakers and studio were finally, and nervously, ready for its debut to the world. Thankfully, Bram Stoker's Dracula opened $30 million on its first weekend, well on its way to a lucrative overall take of $215 million. While it's impossible to draw consensus from the split opinions between critics and fans alike, some things were absolutely true. It would go on to be nominated for four Academy Awards, winning for Best Makeup, Sound Editing, and Costume Design. And one topic everyone seemed to agree on, why the fuck was Keanu Reeves in this movie? The film's music is worth mentioning on its own. Polish composer Wojciech Kielar would construct such a haunting and cursed undertone of strings that the score has since been used several times in the marketing of other horror movies, relying on it to help evoke true fear. Coppola also brought in singer-songwriter Annie Lennox to create the movie's theme song, cleverly titled Love Song for a Vampire, which became an international hit. Despite its troubles, the financial success of Bram Stoker's Dracula may seem like it was almost guaranteed by having a fresh hot cast, but it accomplished much more thanks to an admirer of the original novel and director Francis Ford Coppola. While history would recognize Dracula as a demonic antagonist who would haunt his victims for centuries searching for his reincarnated true love, Coppola's vision for Dracula would almost single-handedly save the director's career and the financial troubles of American zoetrope, celebrate the art of practical effects, honor the words of a literary genius, and highlight the careers of several up-and-coming actors who would continue to do fantastic work to this day. And it gave the famous horror creature a human soul, changing it from a weekend spook fest at the drive-in to a gothic dystopian image with the cast and production of more prestige Hollywood horror movies like The Exorcist and Rosemary's Baby. It demonstrated how relatable we are to the suffering from emptiness and loneliness that is the true curse of the vampire. Sure, vampires can defy the laws of gravity and man-made science, but would forever be prisoners of time while they observe many around them die, left only with memories of immortal love by their side. Oldman has said that a motivation to play the role of Dracula was due to a poignant line of dialogue, which has since become synonymous with the film. I have crossed oceans of time to find Vampires, especially Dracula, have not been portrayed the same in movies again, ever since Francis Ford Coppola's film transformed the legend. And thanks to Gary Oldman's iconic performance, vampires have now earned respect through fear, but with style.